Well, this is session 39 of our synchronized study in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. For those of you who've been following along the last two sessions, we've been in the book of Luke, and if you're wondering why we skipped verse 14 to 36 in chapter 11, it's because we already covered it in sessions 16 and 17. Those particular verses, verses 14 to 36, are parallel to Matthew 12, 22 to 50, and then Mark 3, 20 to 35. The reason why Luke put it way back here, I'm not quite certain. Um, Luke did not focus as much on the chronology of the events as Matthew and Mark did. Matthew was very thorough with the exact detail of conversation. He was a stenographer. Mark, that's Peter's secretary, he was very detailed concerning the chronology of everything. Luke was an investigative reporter, and the part that we're skipping for this session, because we already covered it, folks, it's the incident where Jesus healed a mute demoniac, and the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with Beelzebub. It happened much earlier, but Luke chose to place it here, because Jesus is about to mention again the unforgivable sin, which cannot be explained. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand what took place in verse 14 to 36, which the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with the devil. Jesus knew their hearts, so these Pharisees weren't deceived. They knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and they chose to reject him. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. When you reject the truth, you know it's the truth, you know what the truth is, and you choose to willfully reject it, that is the unforgivable sin. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In which there is no forgiveness because you're rejecting the forgiveness. You're rejecting God's forgiveness. But anyway, for those of you who are really interested in that, go back and check out our session 16 and 17. We covered Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 36 there in exhaustive detail with the parallel commentary from Matthew and Mark. But anyway, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, verse 37, starting there. And what we're going to get into in this session, folks, is how Jesus responds to what we would call today legalism, legalistic religious ceremonial dogma. One of the biggest discoveries in my life when I started reading the Bible for the very first time was that of all the things Jesus could get angry about, it was always legalism that would set him off. I mean, you don't normally think of Jesus as being someone who loses his temper. And I don't think Jesus ever lost his temper in the sense that we would say so, but there are only a few times in Scripture where we see evidence that he really gets angry. And of all the things that the Son of God would be angry about, the way the world looks at things, you wouldn't think that religious ritualism would be something that he would get upset about. And yet, it's really the only thing that he gets upset about, the only thing where he really shows vicious anger, religious legalism. You would think he would be angry with those who didn't believe he was who he said he was. Now, he got put out a couple of times, but he was always trying to implore people, please trust me, it wasn't obey me, I'm God. Jesus didn't have an inferiority complex. He knew who he was, so he didn't have anything to prove to anyone. His greatest concern was for us. He wanted us to trust him, not for his sake, but for ours. Please trust me. You don't see him saying, obey me. It was always, please trust me. Please believe me. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Most assuredly, I say unto you. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Please believe me. I'm telling you the truth. And something else. You would think, Jesus being the Son of God, you would think that he would have shown some anger, at least expressed a little anger, about 
things that were going on in Rome. My gosh, when you look at the history of what was going on in Rome when Jesus was here, you would think he would have his own radio show talking about it. But no, hardly a word, no word at all, really, of what was going on in Rome. What about those who were sinful? I mean, he was wandering around in communities that, uh, I mean, they worshipped pagan deities. There were sexual orgies under ritualistic magic. You would think he would be going into these communities and saying, boy, what a sick and wicked place this is. Shame, shame. But no, you don't see that. A woman caught in adultery. He forgives her on the spot. Well, postpones her judgment because he knows he's going to forgive her later after he takes her penalty on the cross. The woman at the well, been married five times, didn't make a big deal out of it. Say, woman, when are you going to grow up and find somebody that's stable? I mean, none of that. Now, every time he's with them, he speaks the truth. He doesn't shun from it. He's not politically correct to keep from offending anyone or anything like that. He's just not angry. All you see is mercy, grace, love, understanding, compassion. That's all you see from him. And it kind of makes you scratch your head. You think, my gosh, what would it take to get him mad? Oh, I know. A demon. A demon's going to set him off. A demon's really going to make him mad. No. Because Jesus knows who he is and he knows what they are. There's no contest, no comparison. They're terrified of him. They're the ones that lose their composure, scream and shriek in terror. And Jesus just with a word, come out of him. Be gone. Be silent. Come out of him. Be healed. No tempers flaring. No anger, just matter of fact. Shows mercy to just about everybody he runs across. Doesn't show any mercy for demons, but he doesn't get angry. The only thing that sets Jesus off, where he loses, or at least from our way of looking at things, it seems that he loses his composure. Whether we're talking about him grabbing a whip and overturning the tables in the temple, or what we're fixing to read here in this session. The only thing that sets him off is when people claim to represent God, religious leaders, or they claim to know what the truth is, or they know what God says, and they're following God's rules, and God did not make those rules. It's legalism. And we're going to see an example of it right here, folks. For those of you who have ever been burdened by the oppression of religious legalism, you are going to love these next 18 verses is Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 54. I'm going to read this from the Amplified Bible because regular English doesn't do justice to what Jesus said in the original Greek. Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. It says, Now while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to take dinner with him. So he entered and reclined at table. The Pharisee noticed and was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner meaning ceremonially, not just to get clean, but they had a religious custom ritual to wash. It was a big deal. They had to ceremonially wash before dinner. Jesus, obviously knowing that he's not dirty, didn't need to clean his hands before he ate. He was already clean, didn't do it. So the Pharisee noticed and was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate. But inside you're full of greed, robbery, extortion, malice, wickedness, you senseless, foolish, stupid ones acting without reflection or intelligence. Don't you know that he who made the outside made the inside also? Dedicate your inner selves. Give donations to the poor of those things which are within your inward righteousness. And behold, everything is purified and cleaned for you. 
But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every little herb, but disregard and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, and you love to be greeted and bowed down to in the public marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like graves which are not marked. They're not seen, and men walk over them without being aware of it, and they're ceremonially defiled. And then one of the experts in the Mosaic law answered and said, Teacher, in saying this, you reproach and outrage us. You affront us, even us. And Jesus said, Well, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load men down with oppressive burdens hard to bear, and you do not personally even gently touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You know, it's interesting that uh, when you read this, I don't really know what upsets Jesus more. The fact that there is religious ritualism going on in his name, in God's name, in his father's name. I mean, he hates that. But what really makes it drive him over the edge is the fact that not only are these people legalistic, but they themselves on the inside are wicked and wretched and nasty and dirty, and yet they're putting up all these fronts. They've got all of this authority, this religious authority, and they covet and love the best seats in the synagogues. People come in, how are you today, sir? I'm fine, sir. How are you? Good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you, Mr. Johnson. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? How is the wife? My wife is just fine. How are you then? How is she? She's doing great. And everybody's just in the nicest little, you know, that the front row, front pew, front two pews reserved for all these special people of power in these religious circles. And they're just as wretched and wicked as anybody else. And yet on the outside, they're putting up all these fronts and they're making these demands on people who are hurting, who are seeking the Lord and they can't find the Lord. They're not able to get to the Lord because of all these oppressive religious burdens that are being put on them. And remember last time we told you that when the Bible uses the phrase lawyer, it's not talking about a law firm. It's talking about people who interpreted the laws of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were making sure that people kept the law. They obeyed the law. And the lawyers were interpreters of the Mosaic law. And they're the ones who came up with all these extra laws, these extra dimensions to law keeping that God never endorsed. But the Pharisees endorsed it. So not everybody has to do what the Pharisees and these Mosaic lawyers say because they're the religious leaders. And if you, boy, if you make them look bad, if you do something and they see it, well, you're in big trouble. Jesus was getting in trouble with them all the time. Every time he turned around and healed somebody on the seventh day of the week, they got mad at him because it was the Sabbath and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You got to be kidding me. Are you serious? What's wrong with you? God's the one that invented the seventh day Sabbath law. He did it so people could have a day of rest. You got people scared to death that they're going to work too much and make God mad. That's not why that law's there. That's why Jesus told him, verse 46, he says, you load men down with oppressive burdens hard to bear, and yet you do not personally even gently touch the burdens with one of your fingers. In other words, they expect everybody else to obey these laws and rituals, but privately, secretly, they don't obey any of them. And folks, hypocrisy is always a byproduct of legalism. It always is because legalism creates a burden that nobody can bear and it creates hypocrisy. An external show that makes you seem to be bearing up under the burden, you're fulfilling all the demands of the legalism, but you're not really. 
and it breeds hypocrisy. And folks, don't think that legalism is just suit and tie, hellfire and damnation type stuff. Legalism comes in many shapes and sizes. Now, one way this type of legalistic hypocrisy manifests itself in churches is when the church becomes filled with legalistic imperialism. God's wrath and judgment is all this church will talk about. Hellfire and eternal damnation tends to be the constant theme preached from these pulpits, while members within the community, congregation, they are populated with judgmental little tattletales who masquerade their gossip as a form of Christian concern. Anyone not living the perfect stellar example of what the congregation believes to be the perfect Christian life is stabbed in the back, gossiped about, shunned, and eventually ignored until they just fade away with humility. The fear of public disgrace and humiliation become the only motivating factors for righteous living so that no one is allowed to be a broken individual in search of healing. Therefore, people begin to believe that it's better to just remain in sin and keep it hidden than to reveal it and be disgraced. These are the churches that are maintained by modern-day Pharisees. The external demands for righteous living becomes so burdensome that the attitude of the congregation eventually becomes one of hidden complacency. They think to themselves, well, who could live up to these demands? What's the point? I'm going to go to hell anyway. Why fight it any longer? I'm just a good person as best I can. I'll do the best I can. Just keep my mouth shut while they keep screaming about damnation. And folks, this sets the stage for others to deal with their own sin in the same manner. Fear of public humiliation replaces fear of God, and the secrecy creates opportunity for even greater sin. While the church has a public reputation for strict judgment against sin, the actual truth about this particular church is that it's merely a front for the worst congregation of gross sin in the whole town. And as time passes, people actually begin joining the church to keep their own sins hidden so that finally the congregation becomes filled with all manner of unrepentant sinfulness that everybody knows about but no one admits. When a man cheats on his wife, throws her away, and gets a new one, nobody even blinks. Everyone there has their own private sin to keep secret, so no one dare exposes or speaks out against anybody else's sin. People become accustomed to living with their sin in secrecy. Shh. A man can take his wife to one church and his mistress to another without even feeling guilty about it so long as no one else knows. And even if so-and-so finds out, I got something on him, so he better keep his mouth shut. Another man addicted to Internet pornography can spread his habit to friends and co-workers via email while faithfully going to church on Sundays, shouting Amen to every sermon. Sin itself becomes an inside joke as the congregation becomes made up of rebellious little children getting away with murder right under the noses of the leadership who pound away at the pulpit about hellfire and damnation. And nothing ever changes. The love of God is not in that church, it's not in the leadership, and it's not in the congregation. Folks, I've been in those types of churches, and for the life of me, I have no idea why they go. I don't know why people bother themselves with going there every week. I just don't get it. I mean, we're all free adults. Why force yourself under all of these rituals? I guess it's because of guilt. But folks, every bit of that is an extreme example of what takes place when legalism infests a congregation and it grows for centuries. I mean, this is what happened to the Pharisees. Uh, folks, history is replete with Christians fleeing legalism. You've got the first century church fleeing the legalism of the Judaizers, the Pharisees. 
You've got uh, Christian persecution. There's the Imperial Church Age. You've got the Protestant Reformation in which Christians are fleeing from the legalism of the Roman Catholic Church. And then in the 20th century, you've got all these new churches called non-denominational churches popping up. They're filled with Christians who are fleeing the legalism of the denominational churches, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians. They're tired of being shackled by all of these extra rules. So they form these non-denominational churches. And then you have Christians like me who are trying to flee from the legalism of all of the church nonsense altogether. Christians have got to get together. They've got to stick together. They've got to pray together. They need to be with each other. A Christian cannot go it alone, folks. But the Bible tells us how. It says, when two or more are gathered together in my name, I, Jesus speaking, I am right there in the midst of them. And the word he used was the same word we use for assembly, ecclesia. It's, it's right there. Jesus endorses that as his version of what he would call a church. So we've got Jesus' endorsement of two Christians. You don't need 300. All you need is two, at least. Of course, the more the merrier, the more Christians you've got, the better off you'll be. But Jesus said all you need is two. Yeah, but what about uh, the Lord's house and the Lord's day? Well, what about it? I can't find it in Scripture anywhere. I've looked all over the place for it. And people want to argue with you about it. Let them argue because they're not really arguing with you. They're arguing with God. Paul said in Colossians, don't let anybody sit in judgment over you over a holy day or a feast day or a Sabbath. Jesus said, when two or more gathered in my name, I'm right there. Hebrews says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves. That means don't wait till Sunday. You need to be with somebody on a Thursday, get with them. If somebody needs you, I don't care if it's two o'clock in the morning or if it's Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Friday or a Monday, get with them. Don't forsake it. They need you and you need them. Christians need each other to hold each other accountable, but it is God that we answer to. It is the word of God that we follow. It is the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. And we worship him seven days a week, not one. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, legalism takes many forms, folks. I was on the phone with a friend. We were talking about legalism, coincidentally, and uh, she just asked me flat out, you know, what is legalism specifically? And we talked about it, and we came to a conclusion, folks, that the very first case of legalism can be found in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree that was in the middle of the garden, period. Because in the day that you will eat it, you will die. And that wasn't a threat. God wasn't saying, I'm going to kill you if you disobey me. He was saying that that tree will kill you. You're immortal now. You eat that tree, you're going to become mortal. You're going to start aging. You're going to die. Do not eat the fruit from that tree. Now, that was the law. That was God's first and only law. Later, when Eve is being tempted by Satan to eat from the tree, she responds to the serpent and says, well, we're not allowed to eat it. We're not even supposed to touch it, lest we die. And when you read that, folks, it is a misquote. God never said they couldn't touch it. So where did that come from? If God didn't say it, where did it come from? Well, it probably came from self-preservation. They're thinking to themselves, you know what? If I can't touch the fruit, if I don't touch the fruit, then I won't eat it. So to keep myself from being tempted to eat the fruit, I'm going to make another law. It's not God's law, but I'm going to make another law, kind of buffer around it. I'm not supposed to touch it. If I don't touch it, then I won't eat it. 
And uh, we find several examples of this all throughout modern Christianity. The Bible is against drunkenness, but some Christians think that means you can't even drink a margarita. Even though you don't get drunk, you don't even get a buzz. You're just you're at a Mexican restaurant and it goes with the Mexican food. You don't feel anything. But because uh, drunkenness comes from alcohol, then some Christians have an extra law where they tell themselves, I'm not supposed to even drink it. Um, the Bible's very clear about uh, idolatry. You're not supposed to have an idol. You're not, don't make unto thee a graven image. You know, I, I mean, I can hear Cecil B. DeMille, Moses, and all that. I mean, I can hear it in my head. It's, it's one of the Ten Commandments. You should not have an idol. What Christian would argue with that? You'd be surprised, though, folks, what some people call idols, like Christmas trees. I don't get it. I understand that once upon a time it had a pagan background, but every bit of that has been stripped and removed from the Christmas tree. That there's There's no similarity whatsoever to it anymore. And the only reason to shun it would be a, a case of legalism, a, a fear that you might be offending God, which couldn't possibly happen because, folks, when a person gets an idol, they intend to worship it. That's why it was a commandment. When a person makes for themselves an idol, a graven image or whatever, they intend to worship it as God. That's why God is against it. The Christmas tree is not an idol to a Christian. Now, I understand there's some Christians that don't have Christmas trees because their past is occultic. They had New Age mysticism going on in their lives. They were cursed with all kinds of occultic activity, poltergeist activity. So when they got saved, they renounced any and all things that might even be close to being occultic. So when somebody tells them, hey, uh, Christmas trees were started in Babylon, they're like, are you serious? Well, then get it out of the house then. I don't want no, I don't have nothing to do with it. But anyway, that's that's one of those personal issues. It's one of those personal conviction things. But there are some Christians that sit in judgment over others. You have a Christian. You have a Christmas tree in your house. Well, then you're not a true Christian. True Christian wouldn't have a Christmas tree, folks. That's legalism. True Christian wouldn't drink a margarita at a Mexican restaurant. That's legalism. Christians celebrate the day in which Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And uh, the world of paganism has changed the name of that day to Easter. And because of tradition and, and centuries of that day being called Easter, many Christians, even today, will still call that Easter Sunday, not really knowing the pagan background of it. Others of us discovered that Easter, the word Easter, comes from the religion of Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. So we kind of make an effort to call it Resurrection Sunday, just for our own personal desire. And I think that's a good thing. I choose to do that. However, I don't judge Christians who say to me, Happy Easter. Somebody says, Happy Easter, I know what they mean. They know I'm a Christian, so they know I'm celebrating the resurrection of my Lord. So when they say to me, Happy Easter, I say, Thanks, Happy Easter to you too. I'm not going to say, It's not Easter. Come over here. Let me explain something to you. I don't pound over their head this education that they so desperately need. Because folks, everything is pagan. Our calendar is pagan. Do you think I'm going to tell somebody... Well, I'm going to do so-and-so on the third day. The third day of what? The third day of the week. Okay, so wait a minute. Sonny, that's Tuesday. No, it's not Tuesday. It's the third day. Tuesday is a is a pagan deity. The calendar is pagan. I, I don't recognize the pagan uh, calendar. They're worshiping false gods. I, it's the first day and the second day and the third day. Who wants to live that way, folks? That's a form of spiritual OCD, in my opinion. Look. 
Satan is attacking us 24-7. We've got enough to worry about than to become spiritual OCD victims, to be looking for this stuff and judging other people because, oh, I found out that uh, the calendar's pagan. I got a holy calendar that doesn't have all that pagan stuff. Well, you know, pat you on the head. Aren't you special? Some Christians get into an argument over what translation in English the Bible is the best. I have my view. I've done my research. I think it's a combination. I don't think you can narrow it down to one. It's a combination of the King James, the Amplified, and for, to just really go out there for a paraphrase, you can get the living, which is not always accurate. But those three put together, you're going to get a legit, accurate translation of the Bible if you use all three. But there's some people out there that if you're not reading from a King James Bible only, you might as well be worshiping the Antichrist. That's legalism, folks. And Jesus pointed out earlier about the hypocrisy. Legalism, for whatever reason, you can't seem to find it without hypocrisy being right underneath it. I have never met anybody who was legalistic and they were a perfect person on the inside. They just had the problem with being legalistic. No, it's always a hypocrite. I've never seen legalism without hypocrisy, ever. And folks, the reason why I love this passage, among others, I love Jesus' passion. Of all the things that Jesus could have been angry about, the one thing that sets him off is the hypocrisy of legalism. The Pharisee noticed that Jesus did not first ceremonially wash before dinner. But the Lord said to him, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate, but inside you're full of greed, robbery, extortion, malice, and wickedness. You senseless, foolish, stupid ones acting without reflection or intelligence, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Dedicate your inner self. Give his donations to the poor of those things which are within of inward righteousness, and behold, everything will be purified and clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every little herb, but disregard and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues, and you love to be greeted and bowed down to in the public marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like graves which are not marked, but hidden. They're unseen, and men walk over them without knowing it. One of the experts in the Mosaic Law said, Teacher, in saying this, you reproach, outrage, and affront even us. But Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load men down with oppressive burdens hard to bear, and you do not personally even gently touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you are rebuilding and repairing the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you bear witness and give your full approval and consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they actually killed them, and you rebuild and repair monuments to them. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will put to death and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against and required of this age and generation. Now what Jesus is saying, folks, just to clarify here, because he's on a roll, the scripture, here in verse 49, Jesus is saying that the scripture foretold what was happening. And Jesus paraphrased Second Chronicles 36, verse 15 and 16. What he's saying is, you make these awesome um, memorials 
for the prophets who were persecuted before and who were killed. And you say that you're not in favor of that. You wish that your ancestors hadn't killed the prophets. And so to say that, you, you build these memorials honoring the prophets who were persecuted and killed. And yet you're just like your fathers because even now, I know you're planning to have me killed. And it's because of that, this is God, this is Jesus talking about being outside time. You want to talk about predestination, knowing what was happening here. You know, the final blasphemy, the final prophet is Jesus himself who is killed. So Jesus is saying, for this reason, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will put to death and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against and required of this age and generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was slain between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against and required of this age and generation. Now see, they probably don't know what they're, what, he, what he's going after, but he already knows he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they have been persecuting him since the beginning. Jesus says, verse 52, Woe to you, lawyers, you experts in the Mosaic law, for you have taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered and prevented those who were entering. And folks, that's absolutely true. You don't grow in legalism. You don't learn anything through legalism. It is a stagnant state of dead spirituality. Verse 53 says, As he left there, the scribes and Pharisees followed him closely, and they began to be enraged and set themselves violently against him and to draw him out and provoke him to speak of many things, secretly watching and plotting, lying in wait for him to seize upon something that he might say so that they might accuse him. We're going to stop it there, folks. You know, isn't that something? They just proved Jesus right. Instead of being convicted by what Jesus said, now they're planning to kill him. Next week, we will continue right where we left off. We'll start in Luke chapter 12. Until then, we're out of here, folks. Take care.